Hello, everyone, and welcome to the ABPA podcast. Uh, I'm your host, Isaac Sarwanga, and I want to thank you for joining us today. Um, An incredibly special guest. I'm, you know, honored and privileged to 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 have this conversation today. John Rogers, how are you today? I'm doing well. You know, it's just a tough time to be a, in the mutual fund and money management business, but otherwise, uh, doing great. Well, I said before, and I'll say again, and I, I want this to be uh, a conversation of, of of inspiration because I think your your story in, in real time is something that uh, I know personally that we take a lot of inspiration from. Someone who kind of represents uh, resilience, patience, and things of that nature. To give a very quick introduction, John Rogers is the founder of Ariel Investments, which is the largest minority-owned a mutual fund firm in the country. And you grew up in Hyde Park, Chicago, correct? Exactly. I want to jump around a little bit, but since our audience and you know, we're we're really in ties with uh, the Orange Bubble Princeton University, how was your experience there and in particular, can you remember the day that you got your acceptance letter and you knew that you'd be a Princeton Tiger? No, I can't say I remember getting the uh <laughs> the acceptance letter, but I do remember well my visit to Princeton. Uh, you know, the assistant coach, Bob Duquette, picked me up at Newark Airport and uh, took my dad and and me directly to Jadwin Gym, where we had a chance to uh, meet Coach Carrill and some of the other players, and I had a chance to meet my host, Bob Slaughter, who was from Rockford, Illinois, and was going to be the captain of the team the next year, and uh, I got to spend that you know, uh, that time with Bob. And so I still remember that visit very, very, uh, very, very well. You know, it's funny, you jumped right into it. I was a student athlete myself and and joined the basketball team uh, and played under Coach Henderson. And I understand that you played under Coach Carrill and and how much of an influence he had on you. What would would your teammates uh, back in the day, how would they describe you as a player on the court? I think they would describe me, uh, and they still do, as someone who worked really, really hard. You know, I was the guy, and Bob still talks about it, that, you know, I was always taking charges, uh, diving for loose balls, (laughs) bursting through screens. That's right. Just giving it 100% every moment that I was on on the court. So I was a real hard worker and a real, real competitor. Um, I think I was influenced by the old Bulls teams before you guys were born. They had these fierce starting guards, Jerry Sloan and Norm Van Leer. That's right. Who were really role models for hard work and competitiveness. And that, that sounds like that was the spirit of the team back then. And when I had Coach Carrill around, he was, I think he had a different temperament than he had when, when, when you guys were around. What was Coach like and how was his influence on not only your game on the court, but you as a person? Well, as you've uh, suggested, he was an extraordinarily tough coach. Very, very demanding. And when he was unhappy, it was crystal clear to all of us how unhappy he was. And uh, the language he used was very colorful. And, uh, (laughs) you know, I can tell you that when he spoke, no one... I mean, you could hear a pin drop in the gym once he just said, yo, stop. That's he right. He explained to us 
that had gone wrong on the court. The other part about him was he was always brutally honest. He was going to tell you the truth. And uh, he and my freshman year coach, Tony Relvis, always said, you know, this could be the first time in your life where someone's told you the truth. You know, your parents have always told you how terrific you were and your teachers in high school and <laughs> were always you know, how smart you were. This is going to be different because we're going to tell you the truth. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, he, with me, who was not a great player by any means, he would just basically, when I finally made the team sophomore year and he came down the line, talked about each player, and he said, Johnny Rogers, I'm not sure how much longer we can keep you because you're not a basketball player. You're legally blind, and I can't teach, teach vision. <laughs> and, um, you know, you work so hard, we'll keep you around for a few more days and see, see what happens. Mm-hmm. Um, so that honesty and that brutal, brutal honesty was something that was hard to absorb at the time, but I think made all of us better players. The lessons that he taught that stuck with me, and I think most of us, was he really did change the way you think about thinking about your teammates first. Pounded that home that this was a team game. Selfishness was not tolerated. It didn't matter who scored the points, who got the accolades. The most successful players are the ones that help their team teammates be better. Mm. And you're all trying to figure out how to help your teammates be successful when you're on the court. That's right. Setting the right screen, throwing the right pass, making the right cut. Those things were critical. So it transformed my life to understand how important teamwork was and how inappropriate selfishness was. Mm. That's powerful, I think. Yes, go ahead. Yeah, that was the most powerful point. And the second point that I've gotten to appreciate more as I've gotten older was he insisted on precision with everything that happened on the court. Every pass had to be just right. You know, every angle and every cut had to be just right that, you know, you couldn't, you know, be soft around the edges. Precision Mm. mattered. Mm. And that was so important. And I think as I got older, I learned that it also taught you to concentrate under enormous pressure. Mm. He understood that if he made things tough for us to practice, it would be easier when we got into the game. And in my business where you have financial crises and tough markets you have to deal with and tough situations, being able to keep your wits around you while others are getting fearful and sort of discombobulated, I think was a lesson that really dawned on me later that I had learned that from him, the ability to concentrate under extreme pressure. Absolutely. Those things together, teamwork, precision, and concentration – were things that I took away from my time with Coach Carrill. Understood. That that's, It sounds like as a competitor, those things definitely translate from, from the court and off it. Uh, and it helps me transition into, you know, as we're kind of winding through your story, and this is a point that really struck home for me that you started and decided and made that decision to start your company at the age of 24. Someone at the age of 24 does not have that type of just the, the decisiveness to say that is the way in which I'm going to go. Can you talk a little bit about how those things on the court helped you make that decision? And also, what were the deciding factors that led you to say, this is the direction I'm going to go? And, and entrepreneurship was something that was um, for you. 
I think I was fortunate for, for, for a couple of reasons. I mean, you know, there's the well-told story that my father you know, bought socks for me every birthday and Christmas after I was 12 instead of toys. So by the time I started, you know, at Princeton, you know, my father had started to turn the whole portfolio over to me so I could make my own stock selections at a young age. Mm-hmm. And um, you know, I had a broker right across the street from campus. And so um, the fact that I had been involved with the market through grade school, through high school, through college, um, prepared me for my time at William Blair, where I spent two and a half years there as a, as a stockbroker after I graduated. And um, so when I was 24, I'd basically been following the markets for a dozen years already. Mm-hmm. And I think that gave me, that gave me, that gave me confidence that, you know, I'd pick my own stocks, I'd had success picking stocks, I felt I had a feel for the markets, and that was number one. I think number two, I was developing a very specific investment style and strategy that was based on being a value investor like Warren Buffett, mm-hmm. but doing it with small and mid-sized companies that I'd learned was an important thing to do at William Blair. So sort of blending the best of those strategies together was something that was relatively unique back then. Mm-hmm. Uh, there were not a lot of what they call small and mid-cap value investors in 1983. There were a few, like Chuck Royce and Ralph Wanger and a handful that I could look up to and kind of uh, model myself after. But it's kind of nice when you're starting a business to to not have a lot of competitors doing exactly what you're doing. That's right. So I think that came together. And the other thing, growing up here in Chicago, I was fortunate to get to know some of the iconic African-American entrepreneurs here in town. Uh, John Johnson, who had created Ebony and Jet Magazine, and George Johnson, who had created a company uh, that uh, created Afrosheen and Ultrasheen and ultimately created the largest black bank in the country. Mm. And he, uh, he, along with Don Cornelius, founded Soul Train. So I had these, these just giants here in my own community who started their companies at a young age. You know, right. One focused on healthcare, the other focused on publishing. And I said, well, I have, I have this love of investing. There's never been an African-American money management firm in the country's history. Maybe I can make a little history and follow my love and my passion and be successful at a young age because these guys have been able to do it at a young age. Mm. Understood. And, you, and you, you're pointing to this idea of, as I'm listening to your story, of relationships. And it's funny because, you know, one of the things I harp on, especially for young professionals, is just networking and understanding how to cultivate real uh, and profound relationships, both from a mentor and a mentee aspect. What were the, I would say in your twenties, as you were starting your firm out on your own two feet, how were you able to build such strong relationships with these incredible people that helped shape and kind of mold uh, your mindset going forward? Well, a couple of things. I mean, Part of it comes back to Princeton basketball. Mm. Because whatever organization I got involved in, nonprofit, uh, whatever uh, political campaigns I got engaged in or involved with, I always tried to come at it with that Princeton attitude that I want to be a good teammate. That's right. And help teams that I'm involved with be successful. Mm. And so I would show up at the events, I would write checks that I couldn't afford, I'd volunteer <laughs> to help the team, whatever team I was on, to win. And so I think people recognized that in me and gave me more opportunities to join more organizations, join more campaigns, get involved with more community activities. 
because people wanted to have good teammates around them. Right. People that didn't have their own self-interest at heart in whatever they were involved with. And so early on, I got very involved with Princeton, volunteered for the schools committee, you know, got involved with the Princeton Club of Chicago. That was one of my teams. Uh, I got very involved with the Chicago Urban League and, and, and Rainbow Push and got involved with sort of the African-American team here in Chicago. Mm. And then civically and politically, you know, just volunteered to uh, help various you know, organizations and um, help Rich Daly run for mayor, helped Carol Mosley Braun run for the United States Senate, ultimately helped Barack Obama early in his career. That's right. So those are sort of the teams that I got involved in, but I think I ended up being a really heavily networked because of the approach that I took in trying to be a good teammate in whatever I was involved in. Man, that's powerful. I want to switch gears and ask a very direct question. And this is on behalf of, think of 20-somethings who are in the middle of their career and trying to make that jump in their own way. What would be one singular piece of advice, an action step that an individual could take, regardless of their industry, as they're trying to build and get ahead in their own way? Yeah. Well, after there's a couple of things. I think Number one is just truly being seen as a true expert in your field. Mm. You know, I mentioned earlier, I had been investing for a long time when I started Ariel. I tried to develop the reputation for being a true expert in small and mid-sized undervalued securities. And 37 years later, that's still exactly what I do. And hopefully I'm seen as an expert in this sector of the marketplace. Absolutely. So whatever business endeavor you choose to join up in or get involved in, you want to be seen over time as being a true expert. Mm. That every year you're getting better and better and better at it, learning from your experiences, learning from your mistakes. You know, as Warren Buffett often says, you want to invest in your circle of competence, and you, and, you know, you want to be a, the best in, in understanding the companies that you invest in. So it's the same thing as you're building your expertise as an entrepreneur or as a business leader. You just want to be deemed truly someone who understands your sector better than anybody else and you're a true expert in your field. Understood. Um, the second thing I have to say is what my father always taught me, my second theme is my father always taught me to live up to the commitments that you make to others. Mm. And it's really rare out there today in today's society. So many people make promises they don't keep and they don't show up when they say they're going to show up. They don't write the checks they say they're going to write. They don't help you know, uh, follow up on phone calls they promise to follow up on. <laughs> People make all kinds of promises that they don't keep. So you become the rare individual that if you live up to the commitments you make to others, you're going to stand out in whatever crowd you're in, in whatever city you're in, in whatever profession you're in. That's right. And then you become people become dependent on you. They give you more and more to do because they know that you're going to get it done. Mm. And ultimately you become indispensable. Uh, I saw Melody Hobson do that here at Ariel early in her career. She, Whatever I gave her to do, she got it done. I gave her more and more to do. She got that done too. And eventually, you know, she became president and now co-CEO and, you know, arguably one of the most successful uh, women business leaders in the country. And I think it was that ability to always follow up and get things done for people and, and live up to the promises, the promises that she made to others. That's incredible. The, the, the reason it's funny, as I'm listening, a little bit of insight, but even this call today with, with what's going on in the world, I would have completely expected 
this to be rescheduled. But for whatever reason, uh, you're here on this call, which we're deeply appreciative of. Is that something that you're referring to in terms of, you know, whatever you commit to, this is something that you're going to do? Exactly right. That's a good example of it. I never thought twice about, you know, canceling. And same thing last week, I went to Washington, D.C. to speak to Howard University students at their business school. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're undergraduate students in their, you know, in their business, in the business school at Howard. And a couple of the other speakers canceled. And, but I was committed to be there, mm. you know, and there was good excuses. I'm not being critical of anybody else, but right. just I was living my father's values. Right. And uh, I was glad that I went. The students were terrific. It was their last day before they shut down Howard. And, um, you know, it was a great opportunity to be involved and engage with that uh, group of young people. Absolutely. You know, one of the themes, and we want to keep this as real time as possible, is there's so many people in a variety of industries that are experiencing a shift in this country and around the globe. What happens and how do you um, approach adversity? How do you approach situations where you thought something was going to go one way and it goes left? And, and I wonder if you can talk to that in real time for young professionals, for individuals in their lives right now where you think, you know, you have a plan and it's going one way and, and the world throws you uh, to the left. W- what are some ways in which both personally and professionally you can set yourself up to succeed in that area? regardless of the circumstances? Well, there's a couple things running through my mind, and one's Princeton-related. Princeton um, you know, Professor Daniel Kahneman won the Nobel Prize in behavioral finance while he was at Princeton. And I got to see him speak when I was serving on the investment committee at Princeton. And um, behavioral finance has become an extraordinarily important part of the investment world. And one of the things they talk about is how people have what they call confirmation bias. Mm-hmm. They're constantly looking for information that confirms what you already think. And once you create a perspective and a point of view, you're looking for information that will just reinforce that you're right and everybody else is wrong. Mm. So one of the things I work hard at and our firm works hard at is how do you keep yourself from not having confirmation bias? to make sure that you're looking everywhere for information that can be often disconfirming what you already thought in the beginning. Because at the heart of your question is, I think it's so important for you to be able to adjust to new information Mm. in whatever field you're in. And you've got to stay relevant. You've got to stay on top of the world as it inevitably evolves. And I think that those folks that can be open to new ideas, new perspectives, new points of view can help them deal with short-term adversity and challenges that inevitably happen in business. That's right. But if you stick your head in the sand and say, I'm going to always do it the way I've always done it, uh, this is going to end up fine, you know, and that's what happened to Blockbuster Video and mm. when Netflix came around or, you know, the BlackBerry when the iPhone came around, right. you, know, you have to adjust to new facts and new information to be successful because inevitably, whatever field you're in is going to be disrupted. Absolutely. New changes happen. And so then you also have to surround yourself with smart, younger people who can point out how to help you get through, the, get through these changes that happen. Like Melody Hobson is the perfect person for me to have in the foxhole when we went through the crisis in 08 and 09 and we're going through this tough period now, 
You know, she's 11 years younger. She's bringing on younger talent that's younger than she is to help push her to be the best. Right. And um, I think that's really critical to get through the inevitable adversity that happens in business, surrounding yourself with tough, smart teammates that can help you understand that uh, there are things you need to adjust. And then you have to have the attitude to be willing to listen to fresh perspectives and not have your head stuck in the sand looking backwards. Understood. Understood. And you mentioned uh, Melody Hobson, who is a key person on your team. Uh, it leads me to another question around this topic of leadership and building a team out and something that you've been doing time and time again. What are some qualities when you're building your own team? What are qualities and characteristics that you look for in individuals that, that do qualify themselves as uh, a great teammate? Yeah. Well, as you won't be surprised what I would say. To be a great teammate, just touch on what I was just talking about. One, you've got to listen, be willing to hear different perspectives, create an environment where people feel free to tell you what they really think. Mm. You know, sometimes, often people are afraid to disappoint the boss or challenge the boss. You've got to create an climate where everyone understands their points of view and their perspectives are important to be voiced and that they're going to be heard. So that ability to be a good listener is critical. The one we talked about earlier, you know, living up the commitment, living up to the commitments that you make to others. I think that's what a great teammate does. Mm-hmm. Whatever promises they make, they fulfill them, and the teammates know they can count on them, and that their word is sacrosanct. And then the final thing I think about being a great teammate is you got to look out for others. Right. You know, always be looking out for others, and trying to find ways to help other people succeed. So at Ariel, when we've had you know, young talent, whether it's Jason Tyler, who's now the CFO at Northern Trust, or whether it was Melody, or whether it was Arnie Duncan when he was working here at Ariel early in his career, always looking for ways to help them meet people that are going to enhance their careers, give them the freedom to join boards and, and spend their free time doing things that they enjoy that's going to enhance their network, enhance their knowledge. So you're looking out for ways that, that help make them better. I can remember taking Melody to meet Maynard Jackson when he was mayor of Atlanta and and uh, and uh, Dick Parsons when he was the CEO of Dime Savings Bank. Cause I mm-hmm. thought they would be good role models and mentors for Melody. And I can remember taking Arnie Duncan to meet Irving Harris, who created the Harris School, who loved early childhood education, and taking him to see John McCarter, who was class in 1960, who was running the Field Museum and cared deeply about education. I knew by helping bring my young stars to these older successful people, they would, they, they would want to look out for them as their careers were developing. And um, so that idea of just looking out for others is so, so important, I think, about being a good teammate, not being selfish about it. That's right. That's right. Now, I want to circle back a little bit. And, and obviously, you've mentioned a few names and people who – uh, you have influenced and that have influenced you, but uh, it, we can't go past uh, our parents and, and, and how they've had an influence on us. And many know about your story, but as far as your dad and your mom and the way in which they were able to contribute to the country as public servants, uh, can you talk a little bit about their influence, not just on the direction that you've gone thus far, but also uh, the principles that you've put in place? Well, you know, there's a couple of things that maybe we haven't touched on already is that, you know, 
building the first African-American money management firm in the country's history, I have to say I had to be influenced by the fact that I had parents who were also pioneers in what they did with their their expertise and their education. So, you know, my mom was the first African-American woman to graduate from the University of Chicago Law School. Um, she was the first African-American woman to be an assistant U.S. attorney and to argue a case in the United States Supreme Court. So she was a first in a lot of things. Right. And it showed me that, you know, you could be a pioneer, make a difference, chart your own way, and uh, not feel like you had to be like everybody else, mm-hmm. you know. And she was just very proud. She was a really proud leader um, and just made such a difference in so many lives. I run into women all the time who tell me that um, my mom was an inspiration for them and that she had taken time with them sometimes just to give them advice and counsel. So that was another thing actually I learned from her was the importance of taking time with others and always being there to lend a hand whenever you could. You know, mm-hmm. She was terrific at that, even though she had been this legal pioneer. You know, she met my dad at, at law school. My, she was class of 46. My dad was class of 48 at the University of Chicago. But he had been a pioneer by being in the first group of Tuskegee, Tuskegee Airmen. Wow. And, you know, the first group to go overseas. And he flew well over 100 missions uh, as a fighter pilot in World War II. Mm. He'd grown up the tough way. He had, you know, been an orphan by the time he was 12. He'd lost both of his parents. He lost younger sisters to tuberculosis. He had just had a very challenged early life. And uh, so I think I learned from him that ability to you know, persevere under very tough circumstances, you know, whether it was financially or whether it was being in World War II when African-Americans were not welcome. Um, and, and I talked about earlier, you know, he exposed me to so many things. He thought that it was important for me to be exposed to everything that white America exposed to their children he wanted exposed to me as the only child mm. so that's how i was about the stock market had my summer job at age 16 uh had a checking account at the independence bank the largest black bank in the country he made sure that i got that exposure to african-american entrepreneurs and african-american businesses and wanted me to get exposed to the, uh, at a really early age and then the final thing i mean i learned a lot from my dad but you know, you know talked about the importance of telling the truth and living up to commitments, but also he was very politically active. Hmm. And uh, I would go with him to the second ward, uh, regular Democratic organization meetings on Saturday morning. I'd pass leaflets underneath the doors in the apartment building that we lived in. My parents got divorced when I was three. So he was an active Democrat, working his way up from assistant precinct captain to ultimately becoming a judge. So I, I learned a lot about political activity and how to get involved at a grassroots level. Um, when I was living in my dad's studio apartment uh, during the weekends, when I was after living during the week at my mom's house. Incredible influences, absolutely incredible influences. I wanted to shift gears and ask this very particular question about um, your commitment to continual learning. Can you talk a little bit about why that's so important, uh, as successful as you are, still staying committed to, you know, reading the books and staying in t- on top of not only what's going on, but looking ahead and maybe some books that have influenced you, uh, just for, for, for people to know? Yes. Um, I'll start with the books that have influenced me, because 
you know, um, a couple of them actually had Princeton connections. Uh, Bert Melchior, of course, wrote the greatest investment book of all time, A Random Walk Down Wall Street. He was the chairman of the economics department when I was at Princeton. And I got to know him and talked to him a little bit about the markets in those early days. And he's a giant in our industry for writing that book and his leadership. Um, Robert Caro, who wrote the, the Power Broker, and of course the books on Lyndon Johnson. Um, you know, he's an extraordinary writer. And um, I always have young people read the books about Lyndon Johnson that Robert Caro wrote because it shows you how leadership is developed and how it grows and, and how you can have influence in institutions that you care about. You know, both, you know, Robert Moses and, of course, Lyndon Johnson had enormous impact and were extraordinary leaders. So you learn so much about leadership through uh, Robert Carl's writings. Uh, they're extraordinary. And then, um, you know, the, the book that uh, I really I love a lot, yeah, Adam Grant is his name. Adam's a terrific yes. young professor at Wharton. Right. Uh, and his book, Give and Take, is extraordinary. So those are my three favorite books that I think have enormous impact and enormous influence on me. Um, I had to add one fourth one, John Johnson's book, uh, Succeeding Against the Odds, talks about the challenges of being an African-American entrepreneur and the ingenuity that it took for him to be successful when no one thought you could build a black publishing empire the way that he did now, I think, over 70 years ago. So that would be a fourth uh, favorite that I, I, I enjoy a lot. This idea of lifetime learning, I have to say, I say I grew up you know, in Hyde Park as a part of the University of Chicago community. I went to the University of Chicago High, high School, and it was a place where you learn to love to learn and love right. to read. And you know, the University of Chicago stands for rigorous inquiry and debate and free expression. So I think all those things, you know, helped influence me. And, um, and I think as you put it all together as a competitor, you're always wanting to be the best. Right. And the only way right. to be the best in the investment world is to read constantly and study constantly, seeing the newest ideas on the markets and how to outperform the markets. Um, Warren Buffett talks about, how important reading is, and he and his partner, Charlie Munger, constantly reminding you you have to read broadly and you have to read consistently, and you just can't, you can't take a day off. So um, I have to say, well, growing up in Hyde Park and having getting a chance to get to know Warren Buffett and reading so much about his commitment to always learning and always being the best and understanding the markets to the best of your ability which is a tough, tough game because as Professor Malcolm thought is markets are extremely efficient and very difficult to outperform in the stock market. I think that's powerful. The reason being is that many people know that you should continually learn, but many of us think that there is a point where you can reach a level of success and you can taper off. So to hear those words from someone like yourself is just that much more powerful about continual learning. The other, the other point that I wanted to jump into, and I hope that you can talk a little bit about giving back. You've made it a staple in your career. In particular, in 2008, you were awarded the Woodrow Wilson Award. At Princeton University, the Woodrow Wilson Award is the uh, award that is given to those who have essentially... Yeah, lived, lived the values of Woodrow Wilson. That's right. You know, who talked about, he talked about Princeton in the nation's service. That's right. That was one of his sayings, I think, when he was the president of Princeton. 
And that was something he wanted to instill in Princetonians. That's right. Uh, thank you so much for that. And I, I wanted to uh, highlight that just because I think it's important for uh, the ABPA community and our community to understand that those who are leading are, are giving back in such an incredible way. Why is that important? Not only just his legacy, but just um, the way in which you operate. Why is giving back so important to you? And, and what are the ways in which you've seen that be fulfilling for you in your career? You know, it's interesting that, um, you know, it fits in with this theme that Coach Carrill taught about being a good teammate. So you know, if you if you try to be a good teammate to your own community of African Americans and the school you love at Princeton and my my old high school at the lab school and the city that I love, you know, just trying to be a good teammate means you get involved from a community standpoint. You get involved philanthropically. You you know you donate dollars. You spend your time trying to help the institutions that you love, you know, continue to thrive, and you try to contribute in your own way. And I think over time, I've become more involved in, in, in fighting for uh, social justice and um, realizing that as I've been lucky to be in more and more corporate boardrooms and university boardrooms and other nonprofit institutions, you really start to understand that the economic opportunities have not been equal for the African, commu for the African American community that our income divide and wealth divide have just gotten larger and larger as the years have gone on and not gotten better. And again, I've been in these leadership roles where I can see how the economic opportunities often get doled out to the, and affect the, the same relationships that have been in place for a long time. And it's hard for us as people of color to break through those long-term bonds and, you know, get equal economic opportunity. And so that's become more and more of, of a passion for, my, for me and something that I'm fighting hard to just address and to talk about the fact that it's one thing to have these supplier diversity programs that include us in supply chain and construction and catering, but we all know the wealth and jobs and power today are created in financial services, professional services, technology, and we need to be included in all aspects of the economy where the wealth and power and jobs are created today. And, um, you know, I think that's just so, so essential. Um, you know, what we try to do at Ariel is to not just admire the problem, but to try to figure out some ways to help make a difference. And so we have our black corporate directors conference that we do every year. You know, last year we had 200 directors come who are on corporate boards and the mission of that conference for the last 17 years that we've done with Charles Tribbett from Russell Reynolds is to try to inspire African-Americans that are in these leadership roles in corporate America to fight for civil rights and inclusion when they're in their leadership roles. And every year at the conference, we have what we call the conscience of the conference. Someone like a Harry Belafonte, who's Dr. King's best friend, or Lerone Bennett, who went to Morehouse with, with Dr. King and was executive editor at Ebony, uh, Congressman John Lewis, former Mayor Andy Young, uh, Reverend Jackson, Reverend Sharpton, Valerie Jarrett, President Obama, people like that, you know, Bruce Gordon, who've had, have fought to create a more even playing field for all of us. And we feel like we have those kind of folks come and speak to our conference that will inspire everyone to speak up, and as John Lewis says, make trouble. Um, we think that's just an essential thing. 
And we know so many people sacrifice so much to get these doors open for us. It's just so hypocritical for us to sit quietly by and let all the economic opportunities go to white men when so much was done to open these doors for us. The final point, I got to know Maynard Jackson very well before he passed away, you know, the legendary leader of Atlanta, mayor of Atlanta. And he talked late in his life about how heartbroken he was that all the doors that he had crashed open for people in Atlanta, people serving on boards for the first time and commissions on the first time. And he was heartbroken that so many of these folks were not fighting for our community once they got into these leadership roles. And Maynard continues to inspire me today because I just think he understood that we couldn't move our community forward unless we all fought together for fairness and inclusion. John, I just want to say I'm 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 sitting here listening to the story and inspired, but but trying to ask the questions as well. And uh, before we wrap up, I first just want to say thank you so much. Uh, in the time that we're in, thank you for fulfilling this commitment and, and, and sharing your story. And, and first and foremost, just because I think the inspiration is needed on behalf of the ABPA community. Not only thank you for this time, but thank you for the work that you do. Uh, I think it's an inspiration to many to to go out and strive to to do more, be more, and become more. The last question that I do have for you, uh, centered around this word legacy. Each and every one of us has one. We think about it, some more than others. Would you be able to define what legacy means to you if there was a way that the world can remember your work and you as a person, how would you like that to be read? Well, I think a, a couple things. I think you'd like part of the legacy to be that we delivered performance excellence uh, at Aerial Investments and that we did it with a diverse and talented team so we can show the world that, you know, diverse people coming together can deliver excellence when it comes to performance in the investment management and mutual fund industry. I think that's the number one legacy. I think the number two legacy you hope is that you can inspire the next generation of leaders to fight for fairness and inclusion as they develop leadership roles. You know, I really hope when I talk to young Princeton students, when they get into leadership roles and one day when they're on the board of trustees at Princeton, that they can make sure that Princeton is spending its dollars with minority entrepreneurs and working with uh, African-American lawyers and accountants and financial services executives and all the things that Princeton spends money on. But people can do that in all walks of their life, uh, really, to, um, you know, fight for justice, fight for fairness, and hopefully that Maybe I can sort of uh, be an inspiration for doing more of that within the financial services world because it's an area that was woefully lacking in, in inclusion of our community. Um, I always tell people that the great, uh, uh, you know, back in the old days, General Motors was having issues with, with South Africa. Leon Sullivan was the black director and he fought for the Sullivan principles to make sure that General Motors was working with South African companies in the appropriate way hmm. and was thinking about divestment in the appropriate way. And he left a legacy there for those Leon Sullivan's, Leon, Leon Sullivan's principles. So we're hoping that we can be able to do that too and have principles that we've been able to leave behind of how people conduct themselves in corporate America. Absolutely powerful. John, thank you so much for your time. 
Uh, thank you all for tuning in. This has been the first episode for the 2020 year for the ABPA podcast. Until next time.